The United Nations appeals for $4.2 billion to support Ukraine dealing with the ongoing effects of war. 40% of the population will need humanitarian assistance this year. At the World Economic Forum, discussions of Ukraine's 10-point peace plan. Our strategic objective, as I said, is to get to 1991 borders. A POW's tale of torture and starvation while in Russian captivity. After a series of interrogations, I was covered in bruises head to toe. Plus, what is blood gold and how Russia reportedly uses it to fund the war? Today is Monday, January 15th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Hello, I'm Steve Miller. The United Nations and its partners on Monday appealed for a combined $4.2 billion from donors to support war-ravaged communities in Ukraine, as well as Ukrainian refugees in 2024. UNA Chief Martin Griffiths discussed the need for assistance. 40% of the population will need humanitarian assistance this year. That's 14.6 million people, 40% of the population in Ukraine will need humanitarian aid. Four million people are internally displaced. That's in addition to those who are externally displaced. He added that 3.3 million people live in the middle of war zones, experiencing daily bombardment and uncertainty about where the day will end. In the small towns and villages on the front lines, people have exhausted their own meager resources and rely on aid coming in through the convoys of our partners to survive. A day earlier at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, leaders of talks on Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's peace formula on Sunday said a growing number of countries are working to help set the groundwork for Russia to join one day, an admittedly distant goal as the nearly two-year war grinds on with neither side willing to cede ground. Rustin Yumarov is the Ukrainian defense minister. Our strategic objective, as I said, is to get to 1991 borders. Our military objectives are always within the plan that has been agreed with partners. The Kremlin said that talks in Davos on Ukraine's peace proposals would achieve nothing, as Russia was not participating in those discussions. Now, to break down these developments, as well as to get the latest on the ground, I spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kyiv. President Zelensky uh, has actually arrived already to Switzerland. Uh, he said um, that he will be meeting with countries' leaders and will participate in Davos Forum. Uh, what we know at this point is that he is going to meet with the heads of both chambers of the parliament of Switzerland, heads of the parties and fractions, and, pres- and uh, the president uh, of Switzerland. Also, in Davos, he is planning to hold uh, bilateral meetings with representatives of the EU and NATO, Also, uh, the organizers of the World Economic Forum uh, in Davos announced that he will participate in the event on January 16th, uh, and he will have a special speech at the panel. And that's coming after the United Nations today appealed for more than $4 billion in aid. Uh, Yeah, this is a very good news for Ukraine and really needed support, financial support, uh, because people really need, uh, you know, new home, new arrangement of their lives. Uh, Some people 
people uh, will need it, you know, in the future. Some people need it already and, you know, searching for uh, ways and they need really support from both the state and from partners uh, to actually, you know, get at least something back of what they've lost. But occupied territories is even more complicated question because at this point, Ukrainian officials do not have access there. And it's really difficult to say for sure what, ex- uh, you know, the, the level of uh, uh, disasters. And, and what about the attacks that took place in Ukraine over the weekend? Over the weekend, uh, Ukraine experienced another massive shelling. In this recent uh, months, uh, Ukraine is experiencing uh, such kind of shellings almost every week. And um, particularly uh, on January 13th, Russian forces launched a missile attack using 14 different types of missiles. Uh, this included cruise missiles, aeroballistic, ballistic missiles, aviation and anti-aircraft guided missiles, as well as UAVs. Uh, air, Ukrainian Air Defense Forces confirmed the destruction of eight missiles. And also it was confirmed that most of the missiles did not hit uh, the targets due to the Ukrainian electronic warfare systems uh, action. So uh, basically this is the first attack where the electronic warfare systems uh, disabled more uh, missiles than uh, the actual work of the Ukrainian air defense. Anna Chernikova reports for us from Kiev, Ukraine. Anna, as always, thank you very much for your insight. Thank you, Steve. More Ukrainian children from Ukraine's Russia-held regions have arrived in Belarus as its leader, President Alexander Lukashenko, openly marked the arrival, defying international outrage over his country's involvement in Moscow's deportation of Ukrainian children. A recent study by Yale University has found that thousands of children have been brought to Belarus from Russian-occupied Ukrainian regions. VOA's Lori London spoke with Nathaniel Raymond, executive director of the Humanitarian Research Lab at the Yale School of Public Health. It appears that more children from Donetsk and Luhansk have been moved into Belarus, likely for purposes of what's referred to as patriarch re-education, but can be called instead indoctrination. Do we have any idea how many? At this point, we're trying to learn more about how many and when they entered Belarus, but this is consistent with what Belarus's dictator, uh, President Lukashenko, said he would do, that he would continue the deportation of Ukrainian children and continue their systematic process of re-education. How many Ukrainian children in all since Russia's invasion of Ukraine have been moved into Belarus? We at the Humanitarian Research Lab at Yale School of Public Health have identified over 2,400 children that have been moved into Belarus. We know a lot about where they have gone, and we know some about what has happened to them since they've been in Belarus. What we don't know is where they are now and whether they have returned to Ukraine or they have been moved to Russia or remain in Belarus. That information is unknown. What do you know about what happened to them? What we know is that that primarily end of 2022 into 2023, these children were moved through a network of both Russian security services and government organizations of Belarus and 
a network of what we can call non-governmental organizations, including primarily the Alexei Talay Foundation into Belarus. And uh, about 80% of them were at a camp called Dubrava, run by the main national potash company of Belarus. We know that Russia was deporting Ukrainian children into its own country. What would be the point of Belarus being involved in the transfer of these children into that country? I think that Belarus's involvement serves three purposes. One is that there is something called the Union State, which is a supranational entity and alliance between Belarus and Russia. In the early days of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the Union State, in collaboration between Putin and Lukashenko, began to lay the groundwork for the large-scale deportation of Ukrainian children into Belarus. So this is part of a long-standing alliance between the two countries. The second thing we know is that there had been an effort in 2022 to implement a national patriotic, so-called patriotic re-education program in Belarus involving nationalistic extremist groups, including motorcycle clubs, the Night Valkyries and Night Wolves, and that this process with Ukrainian children is part of that broader Belarus-wide re-education program. The third thing we know is that Russia has been involved in identifying children for deportation to Belarus and has removed immigration and visa obstacles and has also provided the primary train transport through Rostov-on-Don for these children to move. So this needs to be seen as a joint effort between the two countries and Belarus has effectively become an auxiliary component of Russia's broader effort to abduct Ukrainian children. The International Criminal Court has already put out an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin over the deportation of children from Ukraine to Russia. What about any accountability for Ukrainian President Alexander Lukashenko? We have uh, at the uh, humanitarian Research Lab at Yale, we have shared information formally with the International Criminal Court as it relates to Russia's campaign of deportation transfer. We have information on Belarus that we are standing by to provide to the International Criminal Court if they request it, and we stand ready to support any accountability efforts by the ICC or others around Lukashenko's activities. And lastly, how old are these children, and, and are they selectively taking certain children? Are they all orphans? Do they have families? This is a critical point. The children are from highly vulnerable groups. Uh, some are disabled. Some are what we would call in the United States States orphans. Others are children of individuals, of family members who are serving in the military as part of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And others come from highly vulnerable, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And so these children should be seen as highly vulnerable, and many of them are orphans and disabled. And is there any effort or likelihood of getting them back to their home? The core action that needs to happen now is really about accounting. We need to know who these children are, both in Belarus and Russia. We need to understand where they came from and where they are now. Without a effective database with unique identifying registration numbers for these children, it will be hard to secure their return. 
That's Nathaniel Raymond, Executive Director of the Humanitarian Research Lab at the Yale School of Public Health, speaking to our own Lori London. And Lori's going to be back later in the program getting the answer to what is blood gold? Gold being smuggled or sold by Russia that they are using to finance their war. This is VOA News. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Miller. He defended the Avastol steel plant and survived Russian captivity in occupied Olenivka and Donetsk, as well as torture and starvation. Anton Shushkin is a 20-year-old fighter with the National Guard of Ukraine. He was released after a year in Russian captivity back in May of 2023. Anna Kostachenko met with him and talked about his liberation. Junior Sergeant, 20-year-old Anton Stukin is perfecting his shooting skills in the Donbass region. He was in Russian captivity for a year, from May 20, 2022, to May 6, 2023. After a series of interrogations, I was covered in bruises head to toe. At times, they would beat me so hard, my skin would start to peel off. On April 15, 2022, Stukin, together with other soldiers, go to the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol. On May 20, their commander ordered them to surrender. Russians took the post to the village of Olenivka, to a building that used to be a penal colony, located in the occupied part of the Donetsk region, recalls Stukin. They undressed me and asked, are there Nazi tattoos on your body? Are there any tattoos on your body? Basically, if you had any tattoos, they needed you to explain the meaning of each one. Russian defense ministry officials have repeatedly denied accusations of torture, saying in May that prisoners are held in human conditions. But in a recent statement, the UN pointed to a quote, volume of credible allegations of torture and other inhuman acts that are being perpetrated against civilians and prisoners of war by Russian authorities. Stukin's father, Sergei Stukin, did everything he could to free his son. He contacted Red Cross representatives almost every day and organized rallies in support of the Poles. We were organizing rallies in different cities, from Odessa to Kyiv. We spent a lot of our savings to do it. We bought everything from fuel to flags and banners and sometimes paid for accommodation for the participants who otherwise could not have afforded the trip. In July 2022, Russian soldiers took Stukin to Donetsk. Stukin says he was tortured in both Olenivka and Donetsk. It was more physical than psychological. It was difficult for them to find a psychological lever. So in most cases, it was physical. Stukin spent eight months in Russian captivity in Donetsk. He says 25 men were kept in a small cell with no running water there. They let us take a hot shower only twice in that whole year. We were fed with some kind of a soup, just enough to fill a 100-milliliter plastic cup. On May 6, 2023, Stukin was freed from captivity. He had lost 55 pounds and his femoral nerves were severely injured, says his father. 
It was terrifying seeing your son, who had lost half of his weight. He is in a terrible condition, although he will never admit it. went through five months of rehabilitation in one of Kiev's hospitals and returned to the front line in October 2023. But before he did that, he took off just enough time to get married. Anna Kostyuchenko for VOA News in the Donetsk and Cherkasy regions, Ukraine. An extensive investigation alleges that despite international sanctions, the Kremlin has been using the mercenary Wagner Group to launder billions of dollars in African gold to help fund its war in Ukraine. VOA's Lori London is back with her conversation with Jessica Berlin, political analyst and author of the report. What is blood gold? Blood gold refers to gold being smuggled or sold by Russia that they are using to finance their war in Ukraine and also their hybrid warfare activities across the globe. We coined this this term to make it easy for people to understand how the gold trade, even if it's illicit business, it's effectively an economic play, but it is directly tied to Russia's violent criminal aggression in Ukraine. This is not only business, it's truly part of how Russia is waging war. The Blood Gold Report research program launched the investigation in September of last year. My understanding is to investigate the links between Western mining companies and African governments and Russian mercenaries? That's right. We chose the angle of looking at Western companies' involvement in the blood gold trade because this is one of the areas where Western governments and consumers can have some influence. The things that are revealed in the report are not necessarily new information for players in the industry. However, for most people, for most politicians, a lot of the findings will come as a surprise. So the blood gold report in this first phase, our goal was to shed light on something that's been happening in the shadows that's been ostensibly legal, but that should be stopped. What can you tell us about the countries that this involves and what was their strategy and some of the main takeaways? Our investigation showed that through Wagner Group, Russia has earned over 2.5 billion US dollars from the blood gold trade since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine started in February 2022. And Let's bear in mind, that's a minimum. That's just the money that could be tracked. Um, it's probably the tip of the iceberg. The report was also only focusing on three countries in Africa where Wagner is active in the gold industry, Central African Republic, Sudan, and Mali. And in these countries, respectively, um, in CAR, for example, Wagner Group has been given exclusive mining rights for one of the largest uh, gold mines in the country in exchange for giving security services to the ruling regime there uh, in Sudan. Also, in a similar way, Wagner Group has control of a gold refinery, which allows them to not only buy local gold, but then to process it. And so they are exporting it, smuggling it out basically into international markets. And this is a huge, huge cash cow for them. Upwards of 2 billion unreported gold coming out of Sudan every year, um, with Russia and Wagner Group certainly being a large part of that. And lastly, in Mali, the business model, if we can call it that, is a little bit different. Wagner is essentially being paid a monthly retainer 
by the ruling junta there. And that money, however, is coming, of course, from state coffers, which are being filled by the taxes paid by Western gold mining companies. So in these three countries, we see different ways how Wagner Group has basically been able to insert themselves into the gold trade, whether um, illicitly or legally, and sometimes in a hybrid of the two, to make vast profits, declared and undeclared, and uh, take those out of the country. And Wagner is, of course, an operation of the Russian state. And so that money is is going back to the Russian Federation and in turn being used to finance Russia's war on Ukraine, as well as their crimes across Africa, in Syria, etc. I know you focused on those three African nations, but is this even broader than that? Yes, absolutely. What this report highlights is also just one facet of the Russian Federation's multi-fronted assault on the international order and liberal democracies in particular. Uh, So we just focused on gold in this case, for example, but they are also mining diamonds, timber, you name it. And it's not only about the money, it's also giving them the ability and the reach in these countries by getting into bed with these ruling regimes and in some cases making the regimes basically dependent on Wagner Group for their own survival and security. They're able to also disrupt the local politics. They've deployed also Wagner's notorious bot farms and fake news operations just like they used to target the 2016 presidential elections in the U.S., the Brexit referendum, a swathe of of democratic elections across the Western world in the past years. Um, Those methods that we well know have also been deployed in these African countries to destabilize the opponents and the critics of the ruling regimes who are, in effect, Wagner Group's clients. And this, in turn, the destabilization in Africa has regional impacts, causes displacement, violence, suffering. Thousands of civilians have been killed in the countries where Wagner is active. They've been implicated in gross human rights abuses and massacres, resulting in the deaths of of hundreds, even in individual cases and thousands overall. And this instability, the long-term effect, is also having a spillover, of course, in Europe, a major target of Russia's destabilization hybrid warfare campaigns. So by increasing not only the revenue to the Russian state, but also instability in the African continent, leading to increased migration to the European continent, where, of course, the issue of migration is used as a flashpoint to activate right-wing extremists and uh, xenophobic policies and politicians, it creates this spiral that has an undermining impact both in European democracies as well as in African states, democratic and undemocratic. In short, it's a one piece of the broad, broad way in which the Russian Federation, the Kremlin, are trying to destabilize the world. There are international sanctions in place. Companies have stopped doing business with Russia. Does this mean that the international sanctions that are in place, that have been in place, are not working? And how is the money making its way out of Africa and into Russia? Well, the short answer to the first question is yes and no. Yes, a number of sanctions are indeed working and having an impact, but no, because it's not nearly enough. Enforcement has been patchy at best, and we have, uh, for every example of an effectively uh, applied and upheld sanction, uh, probably three examples of sanctions where folks are getting through on both sides. Um, Unfortunately, that's just the way the game is played. 
played, and this is not this is not unique to the sanctions against Russia. International sanctions are always notoriously difficult to uphold across multiple jurisdictions. Um, but we must both increase the targeting of the pool of the sanctions, as well as to clamp down on enforcement of the existing sanctions we have. To the second part of your question. How are the funds getting out of these African countries and into Russia? Well, it's through a complex network of front companies, shell companies, and also, of course, international marketplaces such as Dubai, Hong Kong, where gold is traded, gold is refined, and can be basically melted down and mixed with uh, legitimately sourced gold and thus enter international markets and basically be, be laundered into international markets. So so uh, it's it's extremely difficult to go after it because every time you find a shell company, of course, they can just set up another one elsewhere. It's the usual money laundering whack-a-mole. But in the case of uh, Russia's blood gold, there is quite a bit um, of data out there where we know it's happening, but the sanctions aren't being applied. So this is one of the really important steps that can and should be taken is to enforce the existing sanctions stronger and extend them as well um, to target more people and more companies who are involved in this trade. Jessica Berlin is a political scientist as well as author of the report. She was speaking to Flashpoint Ukraine's Lori London. And that's going to do it for us today. Be sure to stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine as well as news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. On behalf of everyone at VOA, we thank you for listening. I'm Steve Miller.